Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider today with Chad Bown, a fellow at the Peterson Institute of Economics in D.C. Previously, he served on Obama's Council of Economic、uh, Advisers, and most importantly, alongside Sumaya Keens, hosts the excellent Trade Talks, a weekly podcast on the economics of international trade policy. Chad, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to discuss the evolving dynamics of the U.S.-China trade war, taking it as a you know using the lens of a literal war to go through it.、Um, but before we get into that, let me gush just for a second about trade talks. It's extraordinarily well thought out, well produced, and just so so much better than the average think tank podcast production. So I'm curious if you could、uh, walk my listeners through you know what's the motivation for doing the show and、um, you know how I can learn from you and execute at your level. Well, thank you for the for the kind introduction and、um, for the kind words about trade talks. I think it's a it's a labor of love that Sumaya and I you know put together every week. It's a weekly podcast、um, where we try to do a little bit more than just recap the events of that week.、Um, we really try to. Frame it as economists would frame it. So, what are the policy questions that are involved?、Um, what are the what are the laws that are being used?、Um, what are the economic incentives that are that are taking place? And with the Trump administration in particular, there's just no shortage of material. So, I think we've found ourselves quite lucky to have this moment in time.、Um, but for us, we use it as a way to try to get a little bit more in depth into what it is that's actually happening. And we're seeing, you know, if you follow social media, Twitter, it's really, really hard to have in-depth conversations about international trade at the moment. And so, we kind of use this as a forum、uh, to give. You know, at least our listeners a chance to hear how economists typically think in in greater depth about these these particular topical trade issues. So、um, I remember in college writing、uh, a paper about U.S. Japan trade scuffles in the in the Reagan administration, and you know there was a point where I was like, man, if only I could live in like days as exciting as that for trade、um, uh, for for trade story. And you know here we are three months into the likely the biggest trade story since、uh, you know trade conflict since that that、um, uh, uh, that story. And I'm curious, you know, how you're sort of like emotionally taking all of this. On the one level, you know, it's exciting. There are probably more listeners to trade talks than there would be, but you know a lot of these,、um, a lot of the developments aren't necessarily things that you,、um, uh, you know, personally agree with. So where's your, where's your,、um, uh, where's your, you know, heart at right now? So for me, this has actually been going on a little bit longer than than three months. I and it's, I got lucky in a sense of、um, showing up here at the Peterson Institute, essentially right at the moment when it was then candidate Donald Trump. Was starting to be taken seriously,、uh, and so this was April May of 2016. I showed up here. I had then, at that point in time, you know, been at the World Bank for a number of years, been an academic,、um, but I did my graduate studies、uh, on the 1990s. So I had studied, you know, the U.S. Japan battles. I had I had studied studied all of these conflicts, all these laws that the Trump administration has seemingly dusted off. You know, the last time these things were being used was in the 1980s. I had studied these things, but then really hadn't looked at them for for 20 years. So I showed up in April of 2016.、Uh, President Trump gets elected. He starts to do all of these very,、um, the right word, creative things on trade policy.、Um, but it was a lot of things that I had seen before and I had studied before. And there's a lot of parallels, you know, to be drawn. I think out of what we. Saw, witnessed, learned from from the 1980s in particular. You know, when 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 using this war metaphor to 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 describe what's what what's happened over the past year,、um, my sense, and I'm curious how how you how you think it is that it's actually、um, you know more applicable to what we're seeing now than than what was going on in in in、uh, in the 80s with the U.S. and Japan, because you know at the end of the day. China,、uh, Japan really relied on the U.S. for its security guarantee, and there was there was sort of a sense that like when push came to shove, you know, we were we were、um, we kind of had the upper hand in that regard.、Uh, so I'm curious、uh, w- whether or not you agree with that point, and 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 to what extent you think the the kind of war metaphor really does end up、um, applying to, to to what we're seeing right now. 
Yeah, I'm 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 happy to use the war metaphor as kind of a literary device to kind of walk us through some of these aspects, but I I I I wouldn't want to take it too far even even in the current context. I think it is less applicable for the 1980s for the reasons you said. For military, geostrategic, political reasons, the United States and Japan have been allies for a very, very long time. And even though in the 1980s, there were challenges in the trading relationship. And again, you know, what what had happened at that moment in time is you had this very similar to what we see with with China, um, an export-led growth strategy uh, by Japan after the Second World War, its economic development and recovery um, moving into areas that placed additional competition on American industries. You know, it started off with clothing and textiles and apparel and footwear, uh, eventually moved into steel um, and then automobiles and and semiconductors, you know, a lot of the the same sorts of industries and and trade conflicts that we're seeing today. But, you know, the, the big difference was that Japan was a military ally. And so the United States in many respects, had this trump card that it could kind of pull out and say that, you know, we really do need for you to stop exporting as much stuff to us, um, whether it be automobiles or, or steel or semiconductors. And this is this is the card they played in the 1980s. And eventually Japan agreed. And part of it was, you know, they were much more reliant on the United States for military reasons in ways that is just very different with with China today. Uh, obviously, there's other differences as well, but that's a really, I think, big fundamental geo geopolitical geostrategic one. Well, excuse me for the next thirty minutes while um, I, I I I walk us down this road um, of, of of using war uh, metaphors as our analytical tool. So um, first off, I I think it, you know w- whenever you look at something like this, you you gotta start from from the from the lens of strategy, right? So so U.S. trade policy since 1945, um, at least the way I see it, has been relatively straightforward and 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 reasonably consistent between both parties. Basically, using the power and promise of American investment and access to the largest consumer market to to nudge countries towards more um, more open markets and more lower tariffs and more free trade. Um, for for the majority of industries, the assumption then being that more trade would help the U.S. and global economy, as well as reinforce um, uh, reinforce al- uh, you know uh, military alliances. So um, there, there there definitely seems to be over the past uh, a year and a half of Trump's administration a, a sort of reimagining of of what trade pol- what the what the point of trade policy is. Um, so you know, with the globalists now who seem more or less uh, who who more or less subscribe to this traditional view on trade, nearly extinguished in the White House. Um, I'm curious if you could sort of articulate um, maybe the 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 USTR head Robert Lighthizer version of um, what the point of U.S. trade policy is. So I think part of the issue is we're, we're still a little bit unsure and a little bit uncertain about what you know. Um, both Ambassador Lighthizer's perspective is, and then uh, a number of other actors as well. I might, though, frame the approach the Americans have taken, you know, since the Second World War, and then how the Trump administration is is seeing it differently, slightly differently from from the way you have. Please, in in you know, it it really was set off a bit earlier than that. So in 1934, we had the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act in which Congress really, for the first time, delegated trade negotiating authority to the president, uh, recognizing before that that you know you, you had had the Smoot-Hawley tariffs and these protectionist pressures that had just led to really high levels of tariffs. And we wanted to move to a system where we were negotiating ways in which we could reduce our own tariffs, but reciprocally opening up trading partners' markets. And what that led to was first the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the World Trade Organization after that, but essentially the Americans pushing for a rules-based system, and I think that's very important, kind of a market-oriented but rule-of-law-based system that was based on also non-discrimination, so kind of equal treatment out there, and transparency. Uh, and that worked for, you know, 70 years or so until the Trump administration came along. And as with a lot of different areas, uh, President Trump has shown uh, a bit of disdain, displeasure, um, distaste for the rule of law, um, has shown, you know, a willingness 
to to sort of throw that under the bus and to put America first in in sort of a bullying type of relationship with with various trading partners, uh, showing withdrawing American leadership in in certain respects. So I mean that's those are the major I think thematic changes. Whether or not though there's an actual grand strategy behind this, uh, you know I'm not sure. Some of that has to deal with. Uh, the views toward China and the the differing you know, approaches that the, the different people have in the administration toward toward China and the, the challenges that China poses, but it's really hard, I think, also to dis, to disentangle um, those types of concerns from other types of concerns, which are or approaches that this president and his team might have that they're just simply more protectionist and they like tariffs and they're less outward seeking um, than traditional American presidents and leaders have actually been. Sure. I mean, it, it is interesting the kind of the, the, the different friends, you the, the different threads you do get. You, you, on the one hand, sometimes just feel like Trump kind of enjoys throwing these numbers around, um, you know, as as an executive who can, you know, write it right on his pen and, and say he's saving the, you know, jobs in the aluminum industry. But on the other hand, you know, you have Robert Lighthizer giving quotes like the way I analyze it, Senator, they have a system and their system is challenging our system, in my opinion. So, you know, sometimes he ends up um, framing things as actually kind of a defense of that rule based, um, you know, reciprocal uh, uh, re- reciprocal world order, which uh, the U.S. has has been um, pushing towards. Um, so, please. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think so. I mean, it's still too early to really determine, despite the fact that we're now almost two years into this administration. Um, you know, if they have a strategy and and what it is. But one potential strategy is the one that you just articulated, which and is one that I kind of subscribe to. This this recognition. That at this this particular moment in time, at least, was going to be a bit of a reckoning between the United States and China, even if Donald Trump hadn't been elected president. You know, this was a, a critical moment where it has become clear since China came into the World Trade Organization in 2001 that it hasn't fully transformed itself into being a market economy and a participant in the in the trading system in the ways that were expected, anticipated. And that poses challenges. Um, You know, the existing rules-based trading system isn't well-designed to deal with centrally planned um, or non-market-oriented economies, but but non-market also in a way that is very different than, you know, say the Soviet Union, but the way that China has sort of morphed itself into. Um, So this moment was going to come up. Now, I think this is the big question is, is that what the Trump administration is really doing? in their trade policy approach. Are they, you know, sort of throwing grenades out there into the system, threatening to blow it up, recognizing that there is this big political moment, this big challenge that the United States and the West, not just the United States, but Europe and Japan and others as well, face in now confronting this issue of of China. And they're trying to fix that. They're trying to remedy it. They're trying to come up with a new system uh, that might work better. Or is there really some other strategy there going on? And I think that's the part a little bit that I'm still unclear about. Yeah, sure. So, so later in this conversation, we're going to um, we're definitely uh, go, going to sort of compare the, the 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 ends and the means and and see to what extent they they do or don't line up as as um, as with regards to the Trump's strategy on these things. Um, but before we get into that, I'm I'm curious if you if you wouldn't if if you feel comfortable summarizing the. Um, the the Xi trade uh, grand strategy. There definitely seems to be a um, uh, um, an evolution from the uh, Deng Xiaoping era um, Mandarin lesson now Tao Guangyang Hui, which is a Chengyu uh, hide your talents, bide your time. Um, there's there's um, uh, that that era definitely has passed. But I'm curious what uh, what what you think has 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 replaced that. Well, I think the current international trading system has worked extraordinarily well for China uh, and China's massively impressive economic development from, you know, where it came from 40 years ago, uh, becoming much more market oriented in in many respects, Um, being able to open up with the outside world, not only enjoy the benefits of of getting non-discriminatory access to 
you know, export to the United States or Europe or Japan or, or whomever, but also opening up its own market for imports and welcoming in, you know, foreign direct investment, taking advantage of that to help speed up its its economic development. It's just it's it's an incredibly impressive feat. Um, you know, that being said, China just has not naturally evolved into a Western style economy. And I think that's what, you know, the, the, the challenge is. Uh, it's it's done its own thing. It's introduced tremendous amounts of competition, but at the same time, it still has large areas of the economy that are dominated by state-owned enterprises and which can create distortions and can, and can create um, scenarios where, you know, price signals are less meaningful, certainly relative to outsiders. And so, you know, take the well-known examples of, of the Chinese commercial banks, right? If, if they're not lending at essentially market rates, you can effectively subsidize your entire manufacturing sector um, by giving them access to low interest loans um, or for certain segments of the economy where whether it's energy or other upstream products like the steel industry where the you know the hot rolled steel the key input for all the downstream products like pipe or tube or wire all that kind of stuff is provided by a state owned enterprise or a lot of it is provided by a state owned enterprise that puts downward pressure on prices that ends up looking like a subsidy now these aren't the subsidies that we see in the United States or Europe where it's direct payments by a government to you know a company but it effectively works like a subsidy but this is just the chinese system right it's just a system that's evolved um and that's you know what i think now confronts the world is 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 what to do about that this new this new this evolution of this chinese system is unlike anything we've seen before but it presents some conflict with traditional market-oriented economies and whether or two those can get along and coexist, I think, is really, you know, the big challenge. And now that's what China is confronting as well, I think, is they're being challenged by that. Their, their system is being challenged by that. Uh, and they're going to have to think through what their response is going to be. So let's now turn to the order of battle. Um, I'm curious if you could uh, walk us through maybe first with China, uh, since we're on the topic, um, the, the sort of strengths and, and, and weaknesses as they go into this um, uh, this this uh, over the past few months of, of escalating tariffs. So on the strength side, um, I think it's always been clear, at least to me, that China has access to policy instruments uh, that are just not available in outside in in certainly the United States, but a lot of other countries as well. Uh, and that goes, you know, well beyond tariffs, but the ability to you know have domestic regulations suddenly pop up, uh, inspections suddenly pop up. Now, to be fair, we're starting to see some of that kind of behavior happen in other countries, such as the United States, where traditionally the president wouldn't just be able to threaten and impose tariffs uh, on another country. President Trump has exerted tremendous executive discretion by employing laws like this national security law, this Section 232 law in the United States, or this Section 301, the, the, the which is behind this uh, China unfair trade case with the intellectual property theft and enforced technology transfer, all of those issues. You know, these aren't laws that are traditionally used in the United States, and it's sort of in response to how I think certain people see China as, as doing business. So that, I think, is the first strength that China has had traditionally. But then when you see how other countries well, are, what, are utilizing it to, to, to counteract that, you know, it may you may say to yourself, hmm, maybe that wasn't one of our strengths. Uh, before we before we move on from this, we 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 can't forget to mention everyone's favorite, um, uh, you know, unconventional trade war tool, um, which hasn't necessarily been brought out. Uh, the the uh, nationwide boycott. Uh, China has repeatedly given uh, uh, during spats with with South Korea, uh, with Taiwan, with uh, Japan, uh, you know, uh, uh, helped uh, mobilize the population to not buy uh, cars or, or you know pushed tourist groups to, to visit other countries. Um, this, this is, 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 um, uh, one of the more interesting car, uh, 
uh, cards up their sleeve for sure. Yeah, that 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 that's exactly right. Um, it doesn't seem as if they have started to instigate that with respect to the United States yet. And again, I I was in China recently, but but you know it's been a couple of months, so things may be happening. Um, and and we'll see. I mean, I think the experience of you know the the Thad uh, missile system in in South Korea really showed how that could be deployed as an effective weapon. Um, and there's a lot of you know American brands, uh, ways that you can retaliate against American interests that don't involve exports. Now to do so, however, you have to, you have to recognize that some of that could actually be falling into the hands of the Trump administration. One of the Trump administration's big complaints is all of these American companies and multinationals not exporting from the United States, but by going, they're going into China, setting up production facilities in China and producing for China in the Chinese market. Uh, If all of a sudden the Chinese government decides to make life difficult for those companies operating in China, uh, that could backfire in the sense that, you know, triggering uh, what ultimately the Trump administration might want, which is to get some of those companies to leave. But, yeah, that's, you know, that's one area of strength. Um, you know, on, on the weakness side, you know, I'm I'm less sure. Um, you know, I think China does have some, you know, challenges in its own domestic economy, uh, you know, with with credit um, in housing. Uh, it certainly has an aging population. Um, but I don't think they're necessarily, you know, would fit into the weaknesses that President Trump thinks are there. President Trump seems to think that because there's this bilateral trade imbalance where the United States imports more from China than, than uh, China imports from the United States, then that's necessarily going to translate into, you know, China backing down more quickly. And I think, it, you know, in many respects, it's, it's showing up to be the opposite in the the goods that the Trump administration is imposing higher tariffs on. So far, they've picked products that are primarily what are known as intermediate inputs. So these are a lot of the parts and components and gadgets and widgets that go into things that American companies make. Um, now, the difference, of course, is what China is imposing tariffs over is primarily final goods. They're hitting American agriculture soybeans and sorghum, uh, pork products. And for a lot of those things, they don't have alternative markets. If they're not going to ship to China, they're perishable. Um, you know, those farmers are going to lose out. So even though the, you know, there's an imbalance in terms of the export numbers, the composition of trade in many respects uh, can tend to favor China as well. So, so you, but you don't, you don't necessarily buy the narrative that um, an export crunch would, would, would really severely threaten um, the, the, uh, the debt markets here, or, or you know, cause a, um, you know, a cascade of, of, of traumatic economic events leading, um, uh, you know, like the, the, these sorts of worries aren't necessarily, you think, um, all that legitimate on the Chinese end. Well, I think they're they're a bit overblown for a couple of reasons. One is. You know, a number of these products may have alternative markets if they're not going to be sent to the United States. Um, there may be other places in the world that they could be sent. Um, you know, but even beyond that, when you start to look at the products that the United States is imposing tariffs over, a lot of these goods are actually being made by American, European, Japanese multinationals in China and then sent back to the United States. Well, what that means is China's doing a lot of final assembly. You know, it's it's adding a bit of value, but you're also hurting a lot of your own value added, right? These are the uh, ideas and the research and development and the and the you know products that are being developed by American scientists and engineers um, with lots of other American parts and components embodied in them that are sent to China and then exported back. So a lot of what the U.S. is imposing tariffs over is actually then feeding back and harming the U.S. economy as well. So I just, I don't buy into this narrative that this is a very, very easy thing to do. I think there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences um, that economically we're going to only start to realize over time. So let's now turn to the, to the U.S. side, um, maybe first first with where you, where you see Trump's strong suits. Well, 
I I think his strength is how he describes this politically, uh, which does make it seem like it's an easy win for the United States because he frames this as this bilateral trade imbalance issue, which it really, really is not. Um, but politically for him, you know, he that he has a lot of people that his voting base that that buys into that narrative. And even though it's not true economically, it's something they think is true and they're willing to lend support to him for this. Um, he is just an incredibly adept politician um, and has that that core base of support where, you know, his being seen of being tough and bullying, they seem to like. Uh, on on the other hand, they also think that he's a deal maker and so that at the end, these tariffs won't actually come to pass, that he's actually going to make a deal and it's going to be a great deal. Um, but on those points, you know, I, I'm a little bit more skeptical. I'm not actually sure how it's going to play out. But I'm, I guess then the other third thing that that comes to mind is there is broader support in the United States, even beyond President Trump and his base right now that's worry about China. And so there is a bit more latitude to, you know, impose these tariffs uh, to confront China that if he were doing this or when he is doing this toward Europe or Canada, um, there really isn't the same, you know, acceptance there. And, and part of that is I think there's increasing concern about China, increasing concern, you know, both from a military geostrategic perspective, but also increasingly from you know, the American business community that has faced a tougher and tougher time uh, operating in China. So let me throw out a few weaknesses for you. Um, so the first one being Trump himself, um, just in terms of his sort of negotiating style and strategy. Um, the, the biggest blunder I, I I see so far is is the way he handled the ZTE case. So a bit of a summary. Basically, ZTE is a giant uh, Chinese telecom uh, cell phone manufacturer, um, which violated U.S. sanctions on numerous occasions. Um, after repeated warnings by selling um, uh, selling goods uh, selling U.S. goods uh, chips uh, into into Iran, um, but when push came to shoves, it seemed like Trump got a call from Xi saying, "Help me out here," and he said, "Sure, fine." Um, and you know, it, it's funny because we 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 heard eight years of Republicans harping on on Obama for being this terrible terrible negotiator who doesn't know how to play his cards right. I um, mean, even many Democrats getting frustrated with him. Um, uh, particularly when it comes to comes to hanging uh, uh, hanging with the congressional Republicans and John Boehner and the like, um, but I, I'm curious if you see on the one hand, you know, Trump clearly has this talent for for framing things in in a public sense, but but there 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 certainly seem to be questions in in terms of actual you know uh, leader to leader um, n- negotiations, which may have been shooting himself, which may which he may have already been shooting himself in the foot. Yeah, on on ZTE, I I see that episode as um, showing I think weakness of, of potentially two forms. One was it made all of a sudden political what what had previously not ever been really a political area of of U.S. law. You know, these sanctions that ZTE was facing. Um, would had been done not by the sort of political wing of the Commerce Department, but you know just by the enforcement wing, and President Trump undermined that to a great extent, um, which you know then kind of calls into question this issue of any future sanctions. Does the sanctioning you know country or company um, need to believe that they're going to face the sanctions or? Do they somehow think they'll be able to get out of it, you know, if they're kind of too big to fail? And will that lead to kind of moral hazard problems of them doing things that are in violation of sanctions, thinking that I'll be able to get out of this because I'm I'm big enough or I'll be used as a bargaining chip for somewhere else? And that sort of erodes the rule of law, um, you know, general approach of the, that the United States has had historically. So I think that's the one big concern. The second is, it's, it's, is that this really... I think has probably motivated China um, to further pursue the Made in China 2025 strategy, which, you know, whether they're going to do it as publicly or not, this recognition that ZTE was so reliant on American supply chains and parts and components and technology 
that essentially having export controls or an export ban from the United States in place meant that that could essentially cripple the country, cripple the company, sorry. And that's 70,000 workers, right? That just, I think, made the Chinese government recognize how reliant they were on semiconductors and a lot of this technology and say, you know what, we can't be that reliant on the Americans and on the West. We need to do more of this stuff ourselves. Um, And that is, again, another one of these areas that's completely, at least rhetorically, at odds with the position the Trump administration is taking. It's funny because the the, the moral hazard thing works both ways, right? Um, You know, on the one hand, I'm sure the Xi government was like really pissed off at ZTE for um, for doing something so stupid. I mean, risking their entire business for like God knows how many, um, you know, God knows how many cell phones they were selling in Iran. Um, You know, because the the, the ZTE knew how ZTE, the company themselves knew how um, uh, knew how reliant they were on U.S. things. and, And they understood the risk they were facing. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you can you can see this as a way. Um, to uh, uh, you can seek this as like, oh, sure, it's like a Sputnik moment. But on the other hand, um, I can imagine if I'm an executive in a in a in a Chinese company uh, that I can expect she uh, I can expect the government to go to to go to bat for me, even if, you know, five, 10 years from now, I'm still relying and, and something else like this comes up. Yeah, um, I, I just think that this was such new presidential authority and behavior weighing in, in an area that hadn't traditionally been the case, that it did open up a whole can of worms, that it didn't seem as though uh, had been fully thought through, you know, what the consequences of that would be over the long term and how it might actually undermine some of their other really kind of important interests. So so, so staying with U.S. weaknesses for a second, uh, Gary Huffbauer, your colleague, recently wrote a piece um, comparing letting tariffs rise um, on foodstuff during a trade war as being akin to invading Russia in the wintertime. Presidents keeping letting this happen but never really learning. The examples being uh, Carter with uh, the Soviet Union after the Afghanistan invasion and then um, – uh, and then Ronald Reagan with um, with with the, with the Japan uh, uh, tit for tat trade um, trade disputes. Uh, but I'm but I'm but I wonder actually how to what extent Trump uh, really cares about this uh, this sort of thing. Given that you know it's it's hard enough to embarrass him post something like Charlottesville. I wonder what sort of outside pressure would really get him to change his mind on something that he seems to have um, you know one of the few policy areas that he seems to have had constant views on since since back in the 1980s? So that's another really good question. And so I think, um, you know, to frame it, what we've seen happen is China very effectively, when they've been caught up in President Trump's tariffs, have retaliated against American farm products, soybeans, sorghum, pork. Um, President Trump politically about a month or so ago decided that he was going to try to pay off American farmers. So he offered them about $12 billion in subsidies, hoping that that would, you know, quiet at least some of their political wrath in the in the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections. You know, we'll see if it, if it works or not. Um, you know, to be fair, when you talk to farmers, um, you know, despite the fact that they're recognizing that they're being hurt by these policies, that the pushback, the retaliation that not just China, but that other countries are doing as well is hurting them. They haven't yet turned on President Trump politically. Um, they seem to you know, think that he is going to get a deal out of all of this. Now, obviously, for a lot of that part of America, it's more than just their economic interests in trade. They may, they may be more aligned with President Trump on his uh, you know, Supreme Court selections, say, uh, and other other economic policy choices. So it's not just farming. But I think the, the broader point that my colleague, that Gary Huffbauer was making is spot on. The other really nice example and parallel from history that I think is telling was this 1971 episode um, when the United States essentially had a boycott on exports of soybeans. Essentially, soybean prices had risen and there was a shortage in the United States. And so they stopped American farmers from being able to export them. And at that moment in time, it was Japan that was heavily reliant on American soybeans. And so Japan obviously became very, very worried. And their economic response to that was to invest heavily in soybean production in Brazil. And so today, the two major soybean producers in the world are the United States and Brazil. 
And if the United States farmers lose the Chinese market because of these tariffs, Brazil is going to be there to replace them. Well, that Brazil soybean is largely responsible and exists because of poorly thought out American policies from the early 1970s. So this is just an example of a way that uh, unfortunately trade policy, when misused, can actually come back to bite you. Well, God bless the Chinese um, biochemists who I know are out there working on uh, growing the six-legged pig because, uh, you know, one of the one of the exports that the U.S. Uh, sends a lot to China is the um, uh, is is foot hooves, which aren't necessarily all that desirable um, in 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 Western cuisine. But but definitely, um, you know, you see on on almost every menu here uh, here in Beijing. So let's now turn to. Uh, the the operational fronts, as if, as 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 the case may be. Uh, so so you mentioned earlier a few of the um, a few of the laws uh, that 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 Trump is creatively using, um, and and maybe we don't have to go into detail into too much. But I'm curious if if there really is all that much limit. I mean, on the one hand, the, the U.S. is a member uh, of, of WTO, and then there are certain restrictions, and you know you're 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 supposed to go through a process before you can put on countervailing duties. Um, but it seems like Anything can be a national security threat. Uh, so, so is is there anything way in which someone could challenge these these uh, these uses of the law in the courts, or is it basically at the end of the day uh, the president's prerogative? So, there's a number of different ways in which there could be challenges. Whether any of them will ultimately be effective, I think, is unclear. And again, this is my colleague Gary Huffbauer was, was one of the very first people to write about this. And it was, you know, even prior to the election back during the campaign when President Trump was threatening to do what he's actually turned out to do in terms of invoking these national security laws, the Section 301 law. Um, Gary's a lawyer. I'm not. So, you know, this is this is, you know, with a note of caution. Gary's view is that there could be challenges, um, but there really isn't precedent out there to take this power away from the government through the courts. And the courts are likely to say, you know, Congress has given the president the authority to determine what's in the United States' national security or not. And thus, you know, he can exercise it. And so in in Gary's view, I think the the American courts are unlikely to be very useful to, to reining this in. Um, you know, there have been some mutterings in Congress about potentially reining in the president's authority. And that may be ultimately what it takes is, you know, putting a little bit more discipline on when it is the president can simply raise tariffs because some product he or she thinks threatens American national security. There have been calls to do that, various uh, proposed amendments to, to different bills. Not many of those have seemed to get much traction thus far. But what we yeah, are, I can't. I, I was going to say, but what the other thing that we are seeing happening is obviously the retaliation, uh, and so the economic costs of these policies are already, I think, beginning to materialize, uh, and that is going to create some pushback, and more of that may be on the horizon. Countries are are challenging the United States in the WTO's court system. Now, historically, what normally in normal eras, what would have happened is those those cases would have had to be resolved first before you would see the retaliation show up. But that's not the case here. Uh, President Trump is facing retaliation for his tariffs on steel and aluminum and on China, you know, even without countries seeking to go through the WTO's court system. Um, so, so, so this you 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 gave me a nice transition, um, leading into your main criticism of the sort of tactical execution of of, of Trump's trade war so far. So, in recent uh, congressional testimony that you gave, um, you, you focused a lot on a prioritization of action at the WTO level, um, potentially reviving the ghosts of TPP and TTIP. Um, I'm curious if you could sort of elaborate on, uh, you know, saying if you wanted to take a more aggressive policy from uh, the one that the Obama administration followed, um, how exactly you would organize things on the ground? So I think I, I would motivate it, first of all, um, by recognizing that at the heart of a number of the trade issues that seem to be behind what President Trump is doing, there is something there. There's a there there. And so if you look at the steel and aluminum tariffs, um, if you look at the tariffs that were done on solar panels back in January, 
The concern there is this issue with China and China, whether it's excess capacity, industrial subsidies, state-owned enterprises. It's the fact that it's just a very different economic system. Now, where I question the Trump administration's tactical approach is, to my mind, this is a challenge, the Chinese system, that doesn't just confront the United States, but it confronts the European Union, Japan, Canada, you know, all of the market-oriented economies out there in the world. And so what you would naturally then do is to say to all of these other countries, hey, you know, you're all in this same boat. Your companies are finding it difficult to produce. Your steel companies are suffering because of this overcapacity. Your aluminum companies, your solar panel producers can't do this either. So we should work together, um, you know, bring perhaps disputes against China to the WTO, to the World Trade Organization, see what could happen there. If if the existing rule book isn't enough, write new rules in the World Trade Organization and, and deal with it there. Thus far, over the first two years, that's not been the Trump administration's approach. Thus far, they've done exactly the opposite, where they've said to our, our allies, these market-oriented allies in the least, we're going to hit you with tariffs. We're going to impose tariffs on your steel and aluminum. Um, we're going to threaten to impose tariffs on your automobiles. And so these countries are now in a position where they're finding that it's difficult and challenging to cooperate with the Trump administration uh, and actually confront China on these issues. Now, that being said, we may be starting to see some whispers of this potentially changing. Um, there have been some um, statements coming out of especially the European Union, but also Japan, uh, of potential ways to reform the WTO. There doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of American leadership in this area yet, but there have been behind the scenes on three different occasions, there have been joint statements issued by the Trump administration and the trade ministers for the European Union and, and Japan over this common concern of China. And so perhaps um, there may be some ability of these these three countries in particular to show some leadership. That would have seemed to be the, the natural way of actually eventually confronting China. And maybe, you know, it's going to take the Trump administration some time, I guess, to eventually get there. We're now two years into this administration. Um, but that's, I think, that the, how one would naturally kind of confront this, not try to go at the China question, the China issue, the China problem that the United States faces alone, because it's really not the United States alone uh, in terms of feeling the effects of the challenge from China. So, so let me let me give you the um, the the Robert Lighthizer uh, retort and 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 see how you how you respond. So, the natural way, maybe natural according to an academic sitting in um, sitting in the Peterson Institute, but not one who wants to see some real action. So, write new rules. I mean, there's how long has the Doha round been going on now? It seems like that that that. Um, uh, uh, that 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 method has been exhausted. If you want to bring uh, uh, complaints at the WTO, you know that may that may take until the second term to be able to to do um, any tariffs. So the only real tools we have available are these you know trade laws from 1974. And 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 just look at all the success we've had. Uh, China lowering uh, tariffs on certain goods, uh, promising to open markets, uh, open financial markets at a more accelerated pace. Um, you know, this unorthodox style of confrontation has actually been able to get some results. So my my pushback against that would be on the financial markets stuff. A lot of that was being negotiated and was essentially, you know, almost done um, by the end of the Obama administration. So that's kind of doing something that China has really wanted to do itself for a long period of time. Um, the lowering of tariffs, I think, is actually an interesting point. So, you know, a really important thing that, that seems to have taken place is China has actually agreed to lower its tariffs on imports of automobiles. But because of the strategy that the United States has used in this area, it's actually worked to harm the United States. So right now in China, a tremendous number of cars are, are built by American companies, GM, uh, is is the biggest example. When China agreed to lower its tariffs on cars, 
It didn't do so only toward the United States. It lowered its tariffs toward everybody. So this benefits not just or potentially benefits not just cars manufactured in the United States, but also in Japan, South Korea and Europe. If you're the United States, that's a huge task. That was a huge gift that you just handed to the Europeans, the Japanese and South Koreans. Why wouldn't you have them on your side and be asking for something from them for doing that on their behalf? But it's even worse because when China has retaliated against the you know $50 billion of tariffs the Trump administration has imposed so far, they retaliated by raising the tariffs on automobiles back again toward the United States. Now, So now they're now lower toward everybody else in the world based on the work that the administration had done, but not toward the United States. They're back up at you know levels of, of maybe even 40%. Um, so the strategy... It's, it's generated some movement, but not really any movement, it turns out, that's benefiting American interests. And, and can you walk through the, um, the, the potential damage uh, that, that you may see happening to the WTO system by, by, by sort of going around, um, uh, by going around what, what you know, the U.S. has been um, uh, advocating for, for a long time? Yeah. So I think to, to your to your broader question of you know the the WTO system the Doha round n- nothing nothing much had been happening um, I don't disagree with that and I think you know it was even clear under the Obama administration that countries like China as well as India and South Africa and others had really held up the agenda um, of being able to push forward and any new rules and disciplines that you would want to have. But the reaction, at least of the earlier administrations at the end of the Bush administration and the Obama administration as well, was to say, OK, that we're going to have an alternative. And the alternative first was the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. So, you know, let's negotiate new rules um, covering not only the NAFTA countries of, of Canada and Mexico, but a lot of countries around the Asian Pacific with Japan, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand. Uh, we'll write the new rules that we want. We'll do a similar thing with Europe through the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. And what these new agreements are going to have, if you look at them closely enough, there's actually going to be elements of these agreements that are the things that we're most worried about with China. So we're going to write chapters in, in, in trade geek speak. That's what these, these things are called. The parts of the agreement to deal with state-owned enterprises now, the TPP, yeah, you've got Vietnam, but that's, you know, and they have state-owned enterprises. But really, that was an agreement that was written in a way to say, China, these are the big concerns that we have with you, state-owned enterprises, labor, environment, uh, competition policy. You're going to want to be in this agreement, the TPP agreement, at some point. It may not be today, but five years from now, 10 years from now, in order for you to be there in order for you to get in, to accede to this agreement, and there was an accession clause, this is the kind of change that you're going to need to make. This is the kind of thing that you're going to need to be willing to sign up for. So there definitely was a strategy, a rules-oriented strategy to try to deal with China, to try to address China over the long run that wasn't necessarily happening within the WTO. I think there might have been the idea that, well, over the long run, perhaps we'll be able to introduce these disciplines multilaterally. Um but there definitely was a strategy there by by earlier administrations. You know, I would not be surprised. So, so generally, the the the, the trend is with presidential presidential elections in primaries and in campaigns um, for the past uh, you know twenty odd years, people, uh, presidents have been campaigning against China and against China trade. Um, I think there was even some. Uh, some like uh, leak where the Obama, you know, it came out that the Obama administration was actually telling the Chinese this during during one of the campaigns to sort of not be worried about it. And, you know, come uh, uh, come inauguration day, the policy then changes towards more, um, you know, looking towards more economic engagement and, and accommodation. You know, it would be it would be very funny. And I, I would not be too surprised if, say, by year six of a second term of, of a Trump administration, we come back to these these same ideas. And Trump seems uh, and, and Trump thinks that, you know, a U.S. trying to bid a bilateral um, investment treaty is actually like, you know, a, an awesome deal that he can he can sell to the American people and something like a TPP. Um, you know, he can change a few words and say, you know, look, look how great a um, uh, 
um, look how great this this agreement is. So even though um, you know TTIP and, and TPP have had a rough few um, uh, uh, rough few months for sure, they're definitely not. Um, the ideas are not uh, going away uh, permanently. It seems. Well, I think they're not permanently going away for those folks who are trade watchers and who are interested in global governance and setting up rules of engagement and rules of cooperation in the system. I, I agree with that entirely. And while I also agree with your your general point that um, typically in election season, politicians behave on the campaign trail very differently when it comes to trade and trade policy than they do once they come into office. The exception is President Trump. Since he's been in office, there's absolutely zero evidence to suggest that he is actually in favor of free trade, international agreements, cooperation. All he has done has been to threaten to impose tariffs and then followed through in imposing those tariffs. There haven't been any removal of any of the tariffs that he's imposed thus far. He hasn't gotten any other countries to take any tariffs off that they've imposed, and countries have imposed a lot of tariffs against the United States. There have been no agreements with any other country. Uh, Even this vaunted deal that he got with South Korea essentially was a trade-restricting deal. It allowed the United States to keep tariffs on trucks that might be imported from Korea 25 years from now, keep those tariffs on for 40 years or something like this. So President Trump, there's no evidence to support the idea that you've proposed. Now, with President Trump, he can always change his mind in a heartbeat. But when it comes to trade, we just have never seen any evidence um, to actually support the idea of being followed through, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the 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 one um, uh, the one real claim I had because it is true that the that the trade um, uh, you know the, the the just like allergy towards um, towards trade is something that that really you can see throughout the um, uh, uh, throughout the history of, of of him and the administration, but but the allure of the deal. I think is is um, is 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 another one of these things, which is sort of a constant in Trump's uh, foreign policy and personality. And you know, maybe there 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 may come a time where, um, with with all other sort of deals falling apart, this this is a place where he feel like he could, he feels like he can like come to the table and do something exciting and creative. So I don't know. Um, um, it's definitely a long shot bet on my end, but I I, I still wouldn't entirely rule it out. No, I I think it's possible. But I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind with President Trump in deals is he can spin something as a deal that actually isn't better than what we have currently. And this is, you know, the thing to watch here is what's going on with the NAFTA negotiations. You know, it's 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 possible that he may um, come with to some deal with Mexico and potentially Canada that he can claim as a trade deal. But it's not a trade liberalizing deal. It's not a it's not a agreement that improves upon the set of rules that were already there and pushes us forward, but instead that actually takes us backward from from where we had been. Yes, he will claim that as a deal, uh, but I don't think you know people that are truly engaged in the in the international economic policy area it would be the kind of deal that any of them would have been looking forward to or that certainly would be happy to to have concluded yeah so 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 deals but not necessarily towards liberalization but maybe um le- giving a giving a legitimate a legitimizing sheen to the sort of um uh trade barriers which he's looking to uh which he's looking to institute is what is what you're getting at yeah i think that's that's a strong possibility of what we might see so i, I think you know it took china a while to understand, I think, the Trump administration was potentially serious about imposing all of these tariffs. You know, so if we think back to the initial Trump, she, you know, Mar-a-Lago um, summit of, of April 2017, the real sense then was, oh, you know, we understand how this guy operates. He just wants a deal. 
Um, you know, we'll give them some things and, and we, we, we've got this figured out. And I think it's become clearer to them that, that, that they don't, that, that it may just be the case, um, with this president that he likes tariffs. Um, and that may be for, again, one of two reasons that we're not sure about. It could be for, there's this grand strategy involved that, uh, he really does you know, that there really is a plan uh, to potentially remake the trading system, or it may just be that he likes tariffs and wants to impose tariffs. I think what, what China's confronting right now in their response is, okay, we're going to retaliate with our own tariffs. We'll first hit back primarily in politically sensitive areas, agriculture, um, you know, where it is that we can. They're now moving to a lot of other products as well. This, you know, $60 billion list that they released last week, uh, you know, they've essentially exhausted the agriculture for the most part from the United States and can no longer retaliate over that. And so they're moving into a lot of other products. But I think being more strategic, there's there's a range of tariffs they're imposing. Some of them are as low as 5%. They're recognizing, as they should, that any time you impose a tariff, you're actually hurting yourself uh, and and and. China has recognized that, yeah, we do want to impose, you know, some costs on the Americans. So they recognize, you know, the implications and costs of President Trump's actions. But we do want to minimize the damage to ourselves. And, you know, tariffs are costly. The The Chinese consumers are now not going to get access to these soybeans, to these great uh, pig hooves that are, you know, the part of their 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 food supply. Um, so they're minimizing a bit of that by by imposing smaller tariffs, some as small as 5% as retaliation. But I think the bigger question that they're facing is what to do. Uh, and there they're really struggling. Um, you know, they, I believe, said publicly that within the Trump administration, it's not clear who the point person on this should be. We've seen kind of a rotating cast of characters that have seemed to... Um, you know, want to lead the dialogue with China, but to no great effect. And on the Chinese side, you know, it's not clear who's holding, you know, the pen for President Trump and going to be ultimately um, able to take, you know, credible offers that they might be able to make, speak for the president um, in a negotiating setting in ways that are, you know, traditionally done. And until that happens... Until it's clear on the American side who actually has the authority to negotiate, I, I, I see the, the, you know, the Chinese government is just feeling as though they're potentially being embarrassed by this whole thing and thus you know, increasingly unlikely to seriously engage. So there is a sense in which this could get worse you know, before it ultimately um, – before it would get better. Uh, I'm curious if you could walk us through the the currency dynamic here. I mean, China has repeatedly said that uh, they're not using currency de- depreciation as a tool, particularly in response to the trade war. Um, but but say they would. Um, how would you? I mean, because there you know there has been a, a pretty significant devaluation over the past um, uh, uh, over the past month or two. Uh, how do you evaluate that as a as a tool? And 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 does it make sense for an economy to? Um, to sort of print money as a way to, um, or you know, buy back um, uh, currency uh, floating around as a way to um, uh, support exports uh, in a, in a context of a uh, of rising tariffs. Yeah. So I, I think there's a big distinction that needs to be made about um, the the Chinese government behavior with respect to currency of. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even up to maybe five years ago in currency manipulation and keeping it undervalued as a deliberate policy target relative to the just pure economic incentives that are at work today in moving markets. And when you impose tariffs like the United States has done um, or is threatening to do, that can have the exact effect on the Chinese currency that we've seen take place, you know, a depreciation. Um, and which can essentially offset much of what President Trump thinks he can achieve by imposing higher tariffs. If the currency depreciates by essentially that that same amount, you know, then the the cost advantage that would have been there, um, you know, but because of the tariff has basically been eliminated without necessarily having any policy intervention on the Chinese side. So, final question for you. Uh, presumably, you don't have any uh, 
PhD candidates under you uh, right now at the Peterson Institute. But but now in these heady times, I'm curious, um, you know, what 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 dissertation topics you would be throwing out there for, um, uh, uh, you know, eager uh, political economy and uh, PhD students who want to um, you know, take a more academic uh, uh, lens to what's to what's going on right now. So what I would say is I would actually make two recommendations. And I think one of the challenges that um, we face in the United States right now is the result of this problem is we've had, I think, both in economics, but I think also in, in political science as well, increasingly research that has become less and less um, tied to reality, less and less tied to current institutions, policies, laws. So what I would recommend is to reverse that, to focus on um, the data, the policies that we're actually seeing governments implement and utilize today, the laws um, that are out there that are being used. Yes, we need to keep you know utilizing, especially in economics, but also increasingly in political science, models seriously, um, estimation techniques, you know, research design questions seriously. But we also need to treat institutions, I think, more seriously than we have over the last 15 or 20 years where the disciplines have increasingly moved away from that. So what I would say, and again, I think also interdisciplinarity is increasingly or multidisciplinarity. Um, I find now, as despite the fact that I'm a PhD economist, I spend you know much of my time talking to lawyers and legal scholars and political scientists and learning from them um, as I do other economists. So I think in the research world in which we're heading, uh, it's increasingly important to recognize the overlap that we have e- with each other um, and how much we actually need to, to focus on you know reality uh, and what it is that's happening today if we want to contribute. Chad, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks again for having me. Bad boy, don't 